Psalm 94. The Lord is a God who avenges. O God who avenges, shine forth. Rise up, judge of the earth, and pay back to the proud what they deserve. How long, Lord, will the wicked, how long will the wicked be jubilant? They pour out arrogant words. All the evildoers are full of boasting. They crush your people, Lord. They oppress your inheritance. They slay the widow and the foreigner. They murder the fatherless. They say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob takes no notice. Take notice, you senseless ones among the people. You fools, when will you become wise? Does he who fashioned the ear not hear? Does he who formed the eye not see? Does he who disciplines nations not punish? Does he who teaches mankind lack knowledge? The Lord knows all human plans. He knows that they are futile. Blessed is the one you discipline, Lord, the one you teach from your law. You grant them relief from days of trouble till a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not reject his people. He will never forsake his inheritance. Judgment will again be founded on righteousness, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who will rise up for me against the wicked? Who will take a stand for me against evildoers? Unless the Lord had given me help, I would soon have dwelt in the silence of death. When I said, my foot is slipping, your unfailing love, Lord, supported me. When anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought me joy. Can a corrupt throne be allied with you, a throne that brings on misery by its decrees? The wicked band together against the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my fortress and my God, the rock in whom I take refuge. He will repay them for their sins and destroy them for their wickedness. The Lord God will destroy them. Loved ones, this is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Brother Michael. We are continuing in our uh, series this month on cross-cultural foundations in light of the theme that you just heard about in that video, the theme for our ministry year. And we started it off last week when we looked at the way cross-cultural life ought to be. And what we saw, what we considered together was the way the Bible points to this, that God has made us different, beautifully, Taiwanese and Egyptian and Mexican and Dominican and African American and Austrian, a a multicultural multitude of image-bearing people, little prisms that refract the multicolored light of God here in this world, people from every tribe, language, nation, and he made us to be gathered around himself in Christ, fitted together in complementary beauty, harmony, joyfully enjoying around one another's differences. And yet, today, we're looking at the reality that sadly also is. The way it isn't the way it ought to be, because sin has entered the world, has infected our hearts, has broken our relationships, our communities, our institutions, our social systems, and yes, even our churches. If you're following along the storyline of creation, fall, redemption, consummation, here we're looking at cross-cultural community through the lens of the fall. And because we're doing that, and as always, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. So let's pause and let's pray. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much that you are here. We are not just listening to puffs of human air. We are listening to the word of God and the voice of God, and we want to know the heart of God, so help us. And we pray that this time wouldn't just be a time to listen and to know, but a time to then obey, a time to bear fruit, a time to be changed, and so come and make us more like your son Jesus. Please make this community more like you intended and designed for it to be, glorifying you and being a blessing to our neighbors and even to ourselves. So come, take us just one step in that direction in this time. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Recently, my younger daughter received a ukulele for a birthday gift, a sweet little prize 
making music, ready to twang those strings. And as we opened it up, I, I noticed a curious little tag that was sort of hanging from the top of this new ukulele. It, it almost read like a warning. It said, this ukulele needs to be tuned. And I began to wonder why it is that such a notice might be needed. And I began to imagine that perhaps some people had purchased this product or or received it for their birthday, and they tried playing their new ukulele, but it just wasn't sounding right. It it was making all this noise. Uh, And they began to give up on it, thinking that it was broken, a, a flawed product And so maybe they decided they might return it because they didn't know that it just needed to be tuned. I I wonder if that's what happens often with cross-cultural community. You hope to play beautiful music together, the music of the gospel. You, You begin to strum your new instrument, as it were, but, but all you seem to hear is disharmony. All you feel is dissonance. It's not how you thought it would be. And so you decide it must be a flawed product. It, it doesn't make music, just noise. It's too hard. It's not worth it. And so you're ready to send it back, ready to retreat maybe to a place where people just look like you and think like you only. But beloved, have you noticed the tag? Uh, The tag actually that's been applied there by God's word, cross-cultural community comes with a tag, this ukulele needs to be tuned. Don't give up on it. Don't give up. Cross-cultural community is beautiful. Jesus can make music out of our differences, but first he needs to tune our strings. We desperately need him. When you pull us all out of the box in our natural state, yeah, we are a mess. We need to be tuned and then again and again continually retuned and retuned. But it is hard. In fact, humanly speaking, it's impossible apart from God's help because we're sinners in a broken world, a world of cross-cultural disharmony and dissonance. You know this, right? The Bible tells us so, tells us this again and again. These people need to be tuned. Have you noticed this tag? In Luke chapter 9, for example, Jesus actually goes out of his way to rebuke his disciples, James and John, when they ask him if they can please just call down fire from heaven onto their ethnic enemies, the Samaritans. Or in Galatians 2, It's not Jesus' time, it's the Apostle Paul. He rebukes Peter publicly for refusing to sit at the same table as non-Jewish Christians. And in Ephesians 2, a well-known passage, the Apostle describes the friction, the division between Jews and Gentiles and all of us as a dividing wall of hostility that separates us one from another. In a passage like Psalm 94 that was just read a few moments ago, it doesn't specifically address racial division and strife, but it does teach us to name our hurts and our horrors, including our racial hurts and horrors, to name them with brutal honesty. It frees us to mourn and to grieve out loud before God, it encourages us to bring, as one commentator described it, heaven-penetrating cries before God, crying out for justice in the face of oppression. Psalms like Psalm 94 dare us to acknowledge, as another commentator said, acknowledge crippling suspicion that can rise in our heart that God is blind or uncaring about racism because it just seems to persist too long. And a psalm like this dares us even to trust God in the midst of our pain. 
because we live in a fallen and broken world that wrecks and disfigures God's design for us to be in image-bearing, loving, and joyful cross-cultural community. There's much pain. And too often this pain, as we know, is felt in the church. Right here in our pews, even, if we can humbly confess. Because we don't have it perfectly right. It's why we need to keep on growing, leaning into cross-cultural maturity, and humbly repenting, confessing, and loving anew as God leads us to. This pain is too often felt in this church where Christians too often settle for what you might call a a counterfeit kind of cross-cultural unity. A counterfeit unity. Let me tell you a story. There once was an elephant. It's not a true story. There once was an elephant who, like so many people in Washington, D.C., was searching for a new home. Searched on the internet, found a listing, a place that looked like a good fit. And so this elephant extended himself and decided to visit this new home and that original tenant. As the elephant approached the place, a seemingly very kind and outgoing giraffe comes out to greet him. Welcome, Rumi. Are we going to live together as a happy family, says the giraffe. Hold on, hold on, I know a few elephant phrases. Did I get that right? Did I get that right? Before the elephant could even answer, the giraffe was yet kindly dragging the elephant towards the home. You're going to love it here, the giraffe reassured him. And so they approached this doorway, which suddenly the elephant realized was very tall and very narrow. Giraffe-like, in fact. The elephant looked this way and that way, not sure exactly how he would fit through this doorway. The giraffe winked and said, come on, you're going to fit right in. The elephant nestled his way in through the door, had to hold his breath a little bit, but eventually made it through. And upon entering into the living room, noticed beautiful walls that were decorated with brownish, orangish spots. All across the wall. A wonderful decor. It just didn't look like this elephant. The giraffe winked again and said, Isn't it great? You're going to blend right in. As the elephant surveyed the room, he noticed the peculiar furniture. Not like the last place where he used to live. He noticed the TV. A wonderful new TV bolted to the wall. 40 feet high in the air, right at eye level of someone. And then as they approached the kitchen, as the giraffe continued to show the elephant around, they came to the refrigerator. The giraffe elbows the elephant and says, hey, mi casa es su casa, eat anything you like. And the elephant opened the refrigerator door and found piles and piles of wonderful leaves and and fruit. No hay, though. Eat as much as you want. I would love for you to feel like this place is your home. I forgot to mention the refrigerator, too, was 40 feet high in the air. The elephant sort of sighed was wondering, should he actually sign the lease? Dare to live here? Be a part of this home? The giraffe, however, was very sure, a perfect fit. He says to his new friend, his new brother, in fact, we're going to be just like family. Such are the dynamics so often, too often, in many, many well-meaning churches. If you could take apart the story a little bit, in fact, it's what we find in what I a second ago described as counterfeit yet well-intended 
attempts at forging Christian unity in church community. Here are some of the characteristics. Number one, presumption. Presumption. Uh, Sort of the assumption that one grants oneself that we're a welcoming place. Why wouldn't we be? Uh, A place that's in a people that are very confident about the sincerity of their heart and of their motives. And in fact, motives and intentions are so important, that's all they seem to see. Oftentimes, in fact, in such communities, this presumption blinds them to the things that, well, they can't see. There's often a gap between their stated cross-cultural beliefs, of course we want to welcome everyone, and their actual practices and skills. It's worth noting that sometimes white, politically liberal churches that are very consciously committed to multiculturalism can often be the most inhospitable places for people of color because they're not even aware at how far the gap, how far the distance is between their stated beliefs and their actual practices which are built around white norms. Presumption. Number two, minimization. This refers to the tendency where a community can start to downplay differences in order to achieve peace. Oh, it's a superficial peace, though. It's sort of a colorblindness that says, look, we're all elephants and giraffes, yes, but all animals matter. We can be one. Minimizing the real ways in which we have been shaped. Let me change that. Minimizing, as we talked about last week, the ways that I have been shaped. Sometimes some communities can be so good at understanding others, there's a blindness to who I am. The ways that I'm shaped by an original culture. The way that I bring things to a relationship that shape how I communicate. How I love. How I receive. How I give. How I insist. Oftentimes, there's a minimization of wounds and pain of the past and of the present, and especially of the past, because, hey, we're here for unity. Christ has removed all barriers. Amen. And so, aren't we one already? It's worth noting that oftentimes, minorities themselves are the ones who can be the minimizers. Sometimes it's a survival mechanism. Sometimes it's a habit. That's been cultivated after many years of just trying to keep the peace, making sure we all get along. So be less Korean. Be less black. Be less myself. All for the sake of unity. Presumption, minimization, finally assimilation. Assimilation. Where the spoken message of such communities are, of course, elephants are welcome. But the unspoken message is leave yourself at the door. Adopt and fit into the majority culture. And this is unspoken because, again, no one says so. There's sincerity of motives and intentions. But everything in the community... Everything in its relational style, its music, even its humor is shaped like a giraffe, as it were. Shaped by one people, one culture, one group. And such a church might even be multicolored, but in fact, upon closer inspection of the patterns on the walls, brown-orange spots, of the height of the refrigerator in the TV, of the shape of the doorway, even unbeknownst to them, such a church might be multicolored, but it is still monocultural, built for only one kind. And in fact, in such a community, oftentimes to highlight difference is called out as being divisive. And any desire to advocate on a particular hurt in one's own community is cast off so often as being overly political. Worse yet, oftentimes in Christian communities that embrace this dynamic, cultural preferences begin to be embraced, 
solidified, reified, sacralized as the will of God. This musical style is what God prefers. This way of running this program is how God designed it. You're not opposing any culture. Now you're opposing God. Do you see this dynamic around you? Honestly, I would love to point your attention to other communities, other churches, other spaces. Do you see presumption and minimization and the forces of assimilation? I'd love to point you somewhere else, but I need to do this. Do you see it here? Do you see it here? Or where do you see it? And do you understand that as a result of this, the experience of those representing minority cultures is one of alienation? See, there's a presumption, minimization, and assimilation that results in a deep, corrosive, heartbreaking alienation of those who are called in Christ and called as image bearers. Where a person can be in the same pew and maybe even smiling week to week, and yet they come away feeling like a stranger in their own family an exile in their own country, a foreigner in their own house, which is called the house of God. The result is often not just uncomfortable feelings, but broken Christian fellowship. And not just annoyance or a thin-skinned troubledness, easily offended, no, but a deep, deep weariness that I know many of you feel. Sometimes it's even an unacknowledged resentment that rises up in the heart. It's one of the number one reasons why we are presently, in this time, seeing a mass exodus of Christians of color from so-called multi-ethnic churches where people have begun to conclude, time's up. I'm done being an elephant in a giraffe's house. I'm done with counterfeit cross-cultural unity. You see, because there's just such this, this, again, not just weariness, but this pain that comes about as a, as a result when you come to be with God's people, when you come to a place that describes itself as a Christian community, you expect, you desire, you need refuge from a racialized society. You, you need relief from what you endure every day out there. What you endure in the, in the workplace or at school or on the metro or at Walmart. And then you come in to find that the church is no better and sometimes worse. See, what's often lost on people, what, what, what makes this so destructive and, and, and so hard and intractable is that there's a compounding effect. People that bear the burden of, of, yes, racism day in and day out, and if not personally and intensively, then bearing at least the long legacy of racism that their family has borne. And then they step into the church, and just when they hoped for relief, the pain is compounded and multiplied, and that margin of patience and long-suffering gets crowded out thinner and thinner and thinner. Can we talk about racism for just a second? What is racism? It's a, it's a poisonous cocktail of sins. It's not just one thing. It's many things. I think that's why we mess it up in trying to understand how it works. A cocktail of sins, of, of arrogant pride, superiority of partiality or favoritism, which James chapter 2 points out. 
of idolatry of one's own identity or culture or sometimes even just comfort. And all of which adds up to the trampling on the image of God displayed in people. Here's one way two authors describe what racism is actually for kids. Somewhere in between the ages of age 6 to age 13, a, a book called The Gospel and Color, A Theology of Racial Reconciliation for Kids, written by Curtis Woods and Jarvis Williams, two professors, African-American in descent, and a wonderfully helpful guide that I do commend to you if you, as a kid, or your kids are interested in reading more about this. This is how these two have defined racism. A paragraph. God doesn't want us all to look and act exactly the same. The fact that we are all different is actually very beautiful, particularly when we come together to worship Jesus as one big family. But an idea you have probably heard of, racism, tries to turn God's design upside down. Instead of agreeing with the Bible that all people are made in God's image and are equally valuable, racism says that some people are more valuable than others. This is a complete lie, and like all lies, it causes great pain. People who believe the lie of racism can do terrible things, whether they're saying something cruel about someone who is different from them or actually attacking them physically. People have killed other people for racist reasons, yet sometimes racism is far more subtle and sneaky so sneaky it seems almost invisible at first. Racism can be present in words and actions that seem polite, but actually subtle ways of letting people know that they're less valuable just because they're different. And so again, this sinful, corrupting force that values and advantages certain people as superior or more valuable, and then acknowledges or assigns lesser value to other kinds of people and then through their behaviors begin to interact with people on the basis of that sinful view of image bearers and then by their work and over time build institutions and laws and communities that are formed by these sinful views. Well, this is where we end up with a racialized society this sin that infects our minds, destroys our relationships, corrupts our social systems, yields injustices, and functions as a whole social order in this country, which is commonly called white supremacy. And that's a phrase, of course, that makes a lot of people nervous. And yes, it has been misused or wielded in a way that's destructive more than it is descriptive and helpful. But all it refers to is the historical account of the way in which this society from the beginning in America was arranged to confer benefits upon people that were deemed to be white and then to marginalize or exclude those who were deemed to be non-white, beginning with people who were called black and those beyond them as well. It's simply a description in the way that our society has been ordered. Christians need to be the first ones to be acknowledging and honest about these historical details. It is not to assign contempt or anything as such to our white brothers and sisters here in our community. But it is important for us to acknowledge that even while sin infects all of our hearts without exception, there is an enduring legacy larger than any of our individual choices or intentions that we are up against if we want to build cross-cultural community. In fact, even those things that shaped our giraffe-like tendencies in Christian community that might at first seem more benign, where did those ideas come from? That comfort is the most important thing. Uh, that that there's, there's a blindness uh, to the way in which we ought to be interacting, downplaying our differences. Where did these ideas come from? Well, it can be rooted in a distant legacy of racist ideas that actually tell us, well, we're all the same. We're all really just, you know, trying to get along. And really, you're doing your best, so it's all going to be okay. It's important for us to remember that the effects of all this is not just hurt feelings. It's stomping on the image of God in people. 
It's theft because racism steals, steals generational wealth, steals families from one another, steals opportunity, even steals, as was historically the case, church membership from people because they bore the wrong skin color. Racism steals. It's also violence, even physical violence. As Ta-Nehisi Coates has once put it, throughout history, racism has expressed itself in the flaying of backs, the chaining of limbs, the strangling of dissidents, the destruction of families. And even in the present day, racism dislodges brains, blocks airways, rips muscle, extracts organs, cracks bones, breaks teeth. If you think I'm exaggerating, look at the history of police brutality in black communities. Look at the more recent anti-Asian violence that's experienced across the country over the last couple couple of years. Look at in the wake of the memory and the anniversary of 9-11 just this last week. Look at the history, the true stories of anti-Arab violence that we have seen around us. And of course, the long sordid story of anti-Semitic violence. We are not talking about hurt feelings. We're talking about flesh and blood. In fact, it's when we get that that we get to next week's point, which is, if it's flesh and blood that's been torn, then should it surprise us that it takes nothing less than the rending of the flesh and blood of the Son of God to heal us? Should we be surprised that the source of our healing and the hope for our future together would be anything less than the slaughter of the Son of God? which was so graciously and kindly given to us. We're not talking about sociological theory. We're talking about people's lives. We're talking about people's bodies. We're talking about people's lived experience. So then, if true, what are we to do in the face of this sin and sadness? Well, you might say, let's go fix it. Let's go change it. Let's go... Do something. Let's, let's reconcile. Our, let's hug. Well, this is what I want to propose to you today. Here is what we need to do. Here is your great, profound instrument of grace as a first step to growing and building in cross-cultural community in light of this backdrop that we just reviewed. The backdrop of alienation, of broken bodies, of flayed backs, of broken families of the sins of racism, both personal and systemic. You see, because we have not sufficiently grieved the things that divide us and that have wounded us. Yes, there is much more that we must do, healing and acting and changing and moving and growing. We're going to talk about some of that next week. We already have even last week. But friends, too often, and especially in this nation, in the American church, we've almost gotten so used to talking about racism. We're almost, you've gotten used to talking about racial sins enough that we have not slowed down sufficiently just to weep for yourselves, for one another. The first thing we must do in light of our fallenness And these massive barriers to building cross-cultural community, the first thing we must do is reckon with the sin and the brokenness. To feel, to acknowledge, to bear those wounds in our hearts. Because, friends, some things, some truths can't be seen clearly except through tears. 
You can't see the truth of the beauty of cross-cultural community except through tears. You can't see the hope of reconciliation except through tears. You can't see the glory of your neighbor that's been wounded except through tears, not acknowledging the fact of it, but feeling the fierce pain of it. There are certain things that cannot be seen clearly except through tears. So grab your tissue box and let's ride. Grab your tissue box as a starting point. Grab lament. Oh, we're going to move quickly now here. I know this is the whole point of this passage here, but we're going to move quickly. Lament. Lament is simply a biblical prayer language for processing and expressing grief. And Psalm 94 is a great example of a prayer of lament that we find in the Bible. Lament invites us to approach one another in our woundedness, whether ours or in light of the wounds that we see around us historically, personally, and instead of judging, critiquing, or even evaluating whether those wounds warrant tears, protest, response, we simply come alongside one another and weep. One-third of the Psalms are actually prayers of lament, at least 50 of them. God really wants to teach us how to cry with faith. And there's even one book of the Bible that's entirely devoted to lament, and it's called the Book of Lamentations. Here's what one author, who I leaned on heavily here, Mark Vrogop, describes Lament is being. Lament is a prayer of pain that leads to trust. Laments are more than merely an expression of sorrow. Laments acknowledge the reality of pain while trusting in God's promises. And what we find in a psalm like Psalm 94 are basically four steps or four movements to what constitutes a biblical lament. I'll just run through this quickly with you. It's a framework and a set of observations, again, that I'm borrowing from Mark Vogrop, whose book, Weep With Me, is all about how lament can help us grow in racial healing. Step number one, lament draws into this. Turn to God. Number one, turn to God. We bring our pain to God. You say, well, that sounds kind of obvious, doesn't it? No. Because our habit for most of us is when we experience racial hurt, or if we see it around us, we either bottle it up inside, or we talk to a friend, or now we go to social media. But the first place we go is not to God. Here's an invitation, bringing our pain to God, because sometimes silence feels easier, or venting to friends seems easier, even though that is sometimes needed, but both can be unhealthy and even poisonous. The psalmist calls on God, verse 1, the God who avenges. Verse 2, rise up, judge of the earth. And it's subtle, but it's really profound. Repeatedly, he uses the name of the Lord. He names God as he's talking about his pain. Do you name God when you process your pain? He names the name of the Lord in verse 1, 3, 5, 7, 11, 12, 14, 17, 18, 22, 23. Is, does, is that what your prayers sound like when you process your pain? Number one, turn to God. Number two, this might be a surprise to some of you, complain. Offer up complaints. Let me explain. Talk to God about what's wrong and do it with brutal honesty. God can handle it. I don't mean sinfully, but brutally, yes. Because lament gives permission for us to verbalize our anger, our frustration. Lament wrestles with God and even says to God, what are you doing? And so we see in this psalm a naming of all that's wrong. They're proud, verse 2. 
full of boasting, verse 4. They pour out arrogant words, verse 4. They crush your people, verse 5. Slay the widow and the foreigner and murder the fatherless, verse 6. He even names the anxiety, verse 19, the fear, the worry. Here's an invitation for you to tell God how it feels, how it is. And notice, not only personal wrongs, but even systems of justice not working right. Verse 20, did you hear that? Can a corrupt throne be allied with you? A throne that brings on misery by its decrees? Here's how another translation puts it. Can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute? Look at the word of God acknowledging how sin and oppression itself can be written into our laws and then even accepted as cultural norms. So much is the case for racial oppression and sin in our world. Injustice can be decreed, and it is. And sometimes it even presents itself as an ally, a friend of God. We're just doing the will of God, such is the tragic history of religion and racism. One of the most important parts of biblical complaint is this, where you say, again, with a brutally honest heart, where are you, God? Verse 3, how long, Lord, will the wicked, how long will the wicked be jubilant? It looks like you're not doing anything. And verse 7 quotes others as saying, the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob takes no notice. But you almost get the feeling that the psalmist is tempted to agree and is trying to convince himself that that's not true. It feels like you don't see, that you don't take notice. In verse 18, the psalmist acknowledges, my foot is slipping. Complaints. Bring your honest complaints to God. So number one, turn to God. Number two, complain. Number three, ask boldly. See, because lament seeks deliverance and change. Lament invites us to keep asking God to do something even when the answer is delayed. Don't give up. And so Vrograp writes, he moves us, the psalmist, from what's wrong to what's true. We're reminding our hearts of who God is and the promises of God. Look, this doesn't mean that we can't voice our complaints. Sometimes people of faith do that. Well, God is good, so quit your complaining. No, the Bible holds both up at the same time. God is good, and you may complain and bring your heartfelt sorrow and anger before God all at the same time. Verse 9, does he who fashioned the ear not hear? Does he who formed the eyes not see? Does he who disciplines nations not punish? Does he who teaches mankind lack knowledge? God hears. Listen, God hears. God sees. God punishes. God knows. He's a God of comfort. He's a God of justice. He's a God that's near to you in your pain. And then lastly, we learn to trust because all the turning and the complaining and the asking lead to this final destination, making the choice again and again to trust in God's character and his purposes even when it's hard and even when his purposes appear to be hidden. So verse 17 says, unless the Lord had been given me help, I would soon have dwelt in the silence of death. When anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought me joy. The Lord has become my fortress and the God and my God, the rock in whom I take refuge. So we're beginning to rebuild trust, not first and foremost with other people, but with God, believing that God is on my side. So turn, complain, ask, trust. This is the pattern of Lament. And I want to close with this comment here. Why? Why are we doing this? Why does this help? Why is this such a crucial first step as a vital tool in our cross-cultural bucket? For those who are wounded by racist sin and by counterfeit cross-cultural community, this is a life-saving way to process your grief and your anger, to give voice to the wounds within you. Lament is a way to empower you to vocalize your struggles. African-American spirituals are one of the richest and best historical examples of this and how powerful it can be to sing, to write, to weep over what you feel. 
recently, last year, in fact, there was a, a series of incidents in our kids' schools where we were hearing stories about racial incidents, slurs that were being used against our kids who were obviously of Asian descent. And in one conversation with a teacher, a, a leader of the school, and Again and again, we were having to address this and see how we can grow and support and learn together. And then here we are hearing about another incident and another incident and another incident. There were times when it felt like this was all our family had room to talk about in supporting our kids and processing all together over the dinner table. And one day we got yet another email that said, I'm really sorry it's happened again. And my response was, thank you for all that you've done, but I need to say, this really makes me mad. I need to say, it really upsets me. I want to tell you that. And I realized as I actually wrote that email on the metro with tears in my eyes, I realized that that actually, in a sense, was a form of lament that I needed to express out loud, both for this school leader to hear, but also for me to hear for myself. This is an invitation for those who have been wounded by such sins to lament helps us to know that we're not alone in our struggle. It helps us to renew our trust in God even when our trust in people falters. I want to read for you a, a wonderful lament written by African-American pastor leader Micah Edmondson as an example of how he put these words together. Based on Psalm 137, by the streets of Ferguson we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. We know we are your children, Lord. We know you created black and brown lives in your image and that those lives matter to you and yet they have been treated as expendable. We are afraid, Lord, afraid to walk our own neighborhoods, afraid to drive our own vehicles, afraid that our black sons will be the next Tamir Rice or Mike Brown. We are afraid of any encounter with the very officers sworn to protect and serve us. Lord, we hear of more unarmed black people killed under suspicious circumstances every week. Though the media has moved on from these stories, we are still afraid, Lord, because no amount of respectability will protect us from those who fear our very skin. To make matters worse, our own church members, Christian brothers and sisters, have denied our suffering. They have despised our tears and our, dismissed our fears as illegitimate, even unchristian. Rather than weep with us, they required that we sing songs of mirth. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Sing of joy. Sing of happiness. But how can we sing of happiness at a time like this? If I forget your slain image bearers, if I forget your standard of justice, if I forget your love for suffering people, may my right hand forget its skill and I never sing again. Lord, remember the devastation that hatred and injustice has wrought against us. Lord, remember and destroy the works of the devil. Destroy the instruments of injustice. Defeat the principality that has exploited black life in this land for so long. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. And so we raise our voices and our cries. How about for those who themselves have not been wounded by racist sin, whether if you're in the majority culture, brothers and sisters, or if in a moment you're of a different cultural or ethnic group from one that has just experienced deep grief and suffering? Well, here, lament gives a voice of empathy. I may not understand completely what it is that you feel, but I can weep with you. I may not understand completely, but I'm willing to walk alongside a brother or sister in pain. And instead of moving into fix-it mode, instead of moving into interrogation mode, if I see a brother or sister weeping, I will weep with you. And so prayers of lament from this perspective becomes an exercise in gospel empathy. And I say gospel because, of course, this is the story of Christ, the eternal Son of God who was far off, who came near to us 
and not only near, but actually entered into human frailty, our very own flesh, that he might feel our wounds, bear our pains, shed his own tears for our sorrows, such that he would be known in Isaiah as the man of sorrows, and one day, in fact, stand in our place to die in our place, that one day our tears might be no more. The king of empathy, Jesus is. And he calls us then to be like him. To weep with those who weep, as Romans 12 tells us. Because lament helps others know that they're not alone in the struggle. So whichever perspective you might take in it, again, can change from moment to moment and episode to episode or season in life to season in life, such as the nature of cross-cultural community. We're not always in fixed positions, but you can lament with one another, and we must lament with one another. And not just as a technique, but as a way of bearing the very heart of Jesus, the truly empathetic one, the one who put us first, the one who wept our tears. Mark Vrogel says this so helpfully, entering the pain of another and lamenting with others demonstrates the very heart of Christianity. So here's the question, what have you experienced of the love of God? What have you experienced of the sympathy, the care, the compassion, the tears of God for you, and are you ready to pass that on to others? What have you experienced of the strength of God and the commitment of God himself to address injustice and wounds in your life that you know that you can verbalize them, vocalize them, pray them out loud, even with complaint, and know that your God will hear you because he is on your side? Dear friends, we are endeavoring to build cross-cultural community. By God's grace, we will we do this against the backdrop of the fall. Sin has corrupted our hearts, our relationships, our communities, our institutions, our world. And yet God gives us grace to take baby steps in the direction of healing. Here's one baby step right here. Your tears. Will you offer them as a gift to one another as we heal by the grace of Jesus? Will you offer the gift of tears? Let's pray. So Jesus, we ask that you would come and be kind to us, that you would love us even as we learn to love. Oh, Jesus, help us to lament. Give us wisdom in learning how to do this, what this means, and where we go from here. And Jesus, we seek to be more like you. That's what this is. We need your spirit. Oh, Savior of sufferings and sorrow, we need your spirit to trust in you even when it hurts that bad. We need your spirit, and we do trust in you. We trust in you, even when we hurt. We pray in Christ's name, amen.